Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. My crew and I need more information before we can make our recommendations to Starfleet. But I'm puzzled over you bringing a Betazoid to this meeting. If her purpose, sir, is to probe my thoughts... I can sense only strong emotions, Grappler. Frequency's open, sir. I have asked you here to discuss a mutual problem, Captain. Captain, I sense considerable deception on Buck's part and danger. Listening to episode 130 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about lie detectors. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I want to encourage you, please be sure to stick around to the end of the show. This week's feedback is going to be from our Death at the National Hotel episode we did recently, and so you want to make sure to stick around for that one. But first, let's talk about lie detectors. Human beings have been deceiving each other since the dawn of history, and that's made finding ways to detect lies a high priority. Various techniques have been used throughout history, and with the rise of modern technology, new methods have been invented. The 20th century saw the development of lie detectors such as the polygraph machine. But do they really work? How reliable are they? How have people beaten them? And what should you do if you're ever asked to take a lie detector test? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, why did you want to do this episode? Periodically, we do what I think of as foundational episodes. In these, we develop conceptual tools that we use to evaluate other mysteries. An example was episode 79, where we looked at the conceptual distinctions between magic, religion, psychic phenomena, and science. Another example was episode 52, where we discussed hypnosis, a tool that's frequently used for memory retrieval in true crime, espionage, and UFO cases. Unfortunately, it's also highly unreliable and not to be trusted. In this episode, it'll be similar because lie detectors also are used when investigating true crime, espionage, and UFO encounters, as we saw in our recent two-parter on the Pascagoula UFO abduction of Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker. As we heard in that episode or pair of episodes, one of the key issues discussed both by their critics and their supporters, was the fact that they passed lie detector tests and the controversy involved how good those tests were. So we've encountered lie detectors before and we'll encounter them again. And I wanted to do an episode on how they work and how accurate they are. Also, it's just an interesting subject and there's a good bit to say about it. 
Uh, so th- this may seem uh, an odd question, but how far back in time does lying go? Lying, or at least deception, goes back even farther in time than human beings do. Numerous animal species practice deception. Some of them even have it built into their physical form, like where species are designed to look like something other than what they are. For example, some predators are physically built to disguise themselves so that their prey won't recognize them. This is the case, for example, with anglerfish, which have a long filament growing out of their foreheads, and they can just sit there and wiggle that filament so that it looks like a nice, juicy prey animal that a passing fish could eat. But what they're really doing is wiggling the filament as bait so that they can draw in a passing fish and eat him. On the other hand, some animals are physically built to look like predators. This is the case, for example, with the red milk snake, which has alternating bands of color that go red, black, yellow, black, red. That's very similar to the color pattern on a coral snake, which has bands that go red, yellow, black, yellow, red. The difference is that on a milk snake, the bands for red and yellow are always separated by black, while on a coral snake, the bands of red and yellow always go together, leading to the saying, red and yellow can kill a fellow, because coral snakes are poisonous, but red milk snakes are not. The red milk snake thus deters predators by making them think it's a dangerous coral snake when it isn't. Other animals use their behavior to deceive either predators or prey. A famous example of that is the American opossum, the only marsupial in North America, which famously goes limp or plays dead to deceive potential predators. That leads to the famous expression, playing possum. And by the way, for our listeners outside North America, when I was growing up, we had cats and we'd put food out for them on the front porch at night and then possums would waddle up in the middle of the night to eat the cat crunchies. So I've had personal experience with possums. So what about deception in human beings? All of the examples we've mentioned in the animal kingdom deal with creatures that don't have the kind of spiritual nature that humans do. So they aren't subject to human morality. But after using the process of evolution to produce the human body, God endowed the first human beings with true human souls, and when he did that, he elevated their nature beyond what evolution itself was capable of producing. He gave us his grace in a way that elevated our nature and made it possible for us to live in perfect harmony with him and with other human beings. So love of God and love of neighbor could prevail, and we wouldn't need to do things like lying. But man fell by original sin and lost that elevated nature, putting us in opposition to God and to our fellow man. That means that lies are something human beings have been telling each other ever since the fall. In the Genesis narrative, the first lies told by a human being are attributed to Cain. As we read in Genesis 4, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought some of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. 
The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel his brother, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In this passage, Cain tells two lies. First, he deceives his brother Abel by inviting him to go out into the field without revealing that he's planning on killing him. Depending on what your definition of a lie is, you could quibble about that, uh, you know, whether it's technically a lie, but it's at least a case of deception since Cain expects Abel to believe that he will still be alive at the end of this excursion when that isn't the case. And secondly, he directly lies to God by saying he doesn't know where Abel is when, in fact, he's killed Abel and does know. Also, there's a little subtlety in the text that may not be obvious. You'll notice the text says Abel was a keeper of sheep. And when Cain is talking to God, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, (laughs) am I his shepherd? Am I supposed to keep track of him? So, in any event, lying is something that humans have been prone to ever since the fall, and that means that we've had a need to detect lies ever since we acquired original sin. What's the earliest form of lie detection that we know about? The earliest form is simply watching other people and trying to form an estimate of whether they're telling the truth or not. That involves watching their behavior and seeing if they show signs of deception, like being nervous or anxious when telling us about something they shouldn't be nervous or anxious about. It also involves taking other facts we know and comparing them with what a person is telling us. So if he says something that conflicts with what we know to be true, it's a sign he's lying. But these methods don't cover all the cases we encounter, so we've also developed more specialized lie detection strategies. What are some of the techniques that were used in the ancient world before we got modern technology? One example is found in the 11th century BC during the reign of the Israelite judge Jephthah, who we read about in the book of Judges, uh, chapters 10 to 12. This was a little before 1000 BC. Now, Jephthah was a man from the territory of Gilead, and he defended Israel against its enemies. But some of the Israelites got jealous. These included men from the tribe of Ephraim, who thought that Jephthah had slighted them by not calling on them when Israel needed to be defended. Jephthah's answer was, hey, I asked you before and you didn't show up, so I didn't bother asking you the most recent time, what's the big deal, you bunch of slackers? (laughs) Their answer was, we don't care what you think of us. We will burn down your house over you with fire, so get ready to be burned alive, buddy. The Ephraimites then attacked the Gileadites who defeated them in battle. But some Ephraimites were trapped in Gilead after this battle, and they wanted to get home. The Gileadites were in control of the way home, so the Ephraimites needed to pretend to be Gileadites so they could move around without interference. 
and the Gileadites knew they were trying to sneak out by pretending not to be Ephraimites. And so to expose the deception, they employed a lie detecting technique. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. This is a clever technique. People from different areas have different accents, different ways of pronouncing the same words, and it can be very difficult to pronounce a word in a way that you're not used to. At that time, one of these words was shibboleth, which apparently referred to an ear of grain, you know, like on the end of a stalk of wheat. In Gilead, people would pronounce this word with a sh sound on the front of it, so it would be pronounced shibboleth. But in Ephraim, they didn't say the word with the aspirated initial sound, and so they just used an S sound and said it sibboleth. That allowed them to tell the true Gileadites from the Ephraimite fakers, and that let them detect the lie based on a subtle clue that people didn't have easy conscious control over. They detected the lie by listening for a subtle shift in their voices. This test is interesting because it involves a subtle involuntary cue that people would send, in this case, by their speech. Are there other lie detection techniques used in the Bible? One is found in the story of Susanna, which is in the Deuterocanonical edition of the book of Daniel. It's chapter 13 of the book. In this account, a righteous woman named Susanna has been falsely accused of committing adultery in a garden that had trees. The false accusation is made by two older men, so the young prophet Daniel has the two old men separated so they can't hear each other and then he asks them what they saw. Specifically, he asks them under what kind of tree each of them saw the innocent woman committing adultery. Since the two old men can't confer to get their stories straight, they each say that the woman committed adultery under a different kind of tree, and thus Daniel exposes their stories as lies. This reflects a sound interrogation technique, you know, separating the witnesses so they can't coordinate their stories, but it's not directed to the kind of lie detection that we'll be focused on in this episode. Are there other specialized lie detection techniques that people in the ancient world used? Around 500 BC, so about half a millennium after Jephthah, Priests in India supposedly had a technique that would involve donkeys that were supposed to bray if their tail was being held by a person telling a lie. In this case, the donkey was functioning as the ancient equivalent of a lie detector. The priests told people accused of crimes that they would be left in a room and needed to hold the tail of the donkey. If the donkey brayed, it meant that they were liars who had committed the crime. But if the donkey stayed silent, it meant they were telling the truth and had not committed it. They then left the accused in the room with the donkey and listened to whether or not it brayed. Normally it didn't, and the accused person cited this as evidence of his innocence. But this didn't matter, because the donkeys in this test weren't really special and couldn't really tell if you were lying or not. Instead, what was important was whether you'd followed the priest's instructions and grabbed the donkey's tail. 
if you'd grabbed the tail, that showed you were innocent because the priests had put soot on the donkey's tail. And now that soot was on your hands, showing that you weren't afraid of the lie detector test and revealing that you were a truth teller who had not committed the crime. But if your hands were clean, that showed that you were afraid to touch the donkey's tail, even when instructed to by the priest. So you were a liar who did not want to be exposed by the donkey test. This test is interesting because it involves tricking the person undergoing the test by lying to them. The person could beat the test by grabbing the donkey's tail whether they were guilty or not, so the test wouldn't work unless the subject were deceived into thinking that it worked. China also had an advanced civilization in ancient times. Did they have a lie detection method? Apparently in ancient China, a physiological test was used. If you were a suspect, they had you put dry rice in your mouth. You spit it out, and then they checked whether you still had any rice sticking to your tongue. The idea was that liars tend to be nervous, and so they get dry mouth. If you had rice still sticking to your tongue, that meant you were lying. But if you were telling the truth, you'd produce enough saliva for all the rice to come off your tongue, and there wouldn't be any still sticking to it. This test is interesting because it involves another subtle involuntary cue, this time a physiological one, saliva production, rather than an, uh, rather than an involuntary speech cue, as in the shibboleth example. So how reliable were these ancient lie detection methods? Not very. They were all either easy to beat or otherwise likely to give false results. But the ancient world was a rough place, and these were what they had to work with. So naturally, people were interested in more reliable methods, which seemed to become possible with the advent of modern technology. How did the modern era of lie detection begin? One of the things that accompanied the scientific revolution was taking lots and lots of measurements, as well as improved methods of taking more precise measurements. By the beginning of the 20th century, people were starting to wonder if these measurements could be used to detect subtle cues involved in lying. That's like the Say Shibboleth test or the Chinese rice test, both of which involved detecting subtle cues, one in the voice and one being a physiological change. And both strategies would be revived in the 20th century in new forms. In 1900, the Italian psychologist Vittorio Benussi started exploring physiological changes and proposed that the timing of your breathing changed when you were lying. In 1913, the American psychologist and comic book writer William Moulston Marston proposed that your blood pressure changed when lying. He was the inventor of the systolic blood pressure test, and his wife noticed, because of course he experimented on his wife, his wife noticed that when she got mad or excited, her blood pressure went up. Marston, incidentally, was the creator of Wonder Woman, who is famous for having a magic golden lasso, and when she puts it on people, they are compelled to tell the truth. They can't lie if she's got him in the golden lasso. Despite this, there is a debate about whether or not Wonder Woman's golden lasso was directly inspired by Marston's work on lie detecting. 
There was a problem, though, with Marston's blood pressure-based lie detection. As you know from going to the doctor's office, when they take your blood pressure, they put you in a cuff, which they then inflate with air to squeeze your arm, and then they let the air out of it to take the readings. That takes time, and so you can only do blood pressure readings every so often. You don't get a continuous feed of what your blood pressure is. And that was a problem for Marston's blood pressure-based lie detection, because if you can only take a reading every minute or so, you may well miss the momentary spikes in blood pressure that could signal lying. The solution to this was to try to get a continuous blood pressure reading but there's also a problem with that, which we'll discuss below. When was the polygraph machine invented? In 1921, in Berkeley, California, a medical student and police officer named John Augustus Larson decided to combine multiple physiological measures and measure them all at once to detect lies. These included pulse rate, breathing rate, sweating rate, and blood pressure, supposedly. This test used many different measures at once, and it wrote out the results in a continuous graph. The Greek word for many is polus, and the word for writing is graphe, so this device became known as a polygraph. It writes out multiple graphs of physiological measures at the same time. The press, of course, immediately called it the lie detector. How did the press get wind of the invention? They learned about it very early on. According to a story in the San Jose Mercury News, it started with an Irish priest named Father Patrick Heslin, who was the pastor of Holy Angels Church in the San Francisco Bay Area. The story began on the evening of August 2, 1921, with a knock on the rectory door of Holy Angels in Colma. The air was thick with fog, but still. The housekeeper and a neighbor were able to see clearly enough to later recall that the man knocking was odd, suspicious even, hidden beneath a heavy overcoat, goggles, and a pulled-up collar which concealed his face. Father Heslin opened the door. He listened while the stranger spoke of an ailing friend in Salada Beach, present-day Pacifica, a man in need of the last rites. The cleric gathered a, quote, red Morocco case containing the bread and wine of the Blessed Sacrament, end quote and hastily climbed into the front seat of the stranger's touring car. Father Heslin never returned. On August 3rd, San Francisco Archbishop Edward J. Hanna received a ransom note demanding $6,500 in exchange for the priest. No money drop was mentioned, but the note hinted that the kidnapped priest might be located in a cave. The ransom amount was posted in the paper as a reward. Police and armed vigilantes combed the area, from hills to beaches to residential areas. When a second ransom note arrived demanding more money, there was still no mention of a drop, nor was there any news on the whereabouts of Father Heslin. By then, handwriting experts had concluded that the ransom notes were written by a man of unbalanced mentality. On August 10, 1921, William Hightower arrived at the home of Archbishop Hannah. He had something important to tell him, but the archbishop was in a conference. Hightower then told his story to a newspaper man, who in turn brought in the police. Hightower's story was two stories. The first was that a woman, Dolly Mason, had told Hightower that some guy shot some other guy and then buried the victim in the sand at a popular swimming spot in Salada Beach, beneath an advertisement for Albers Milling Company, which featured a miner cooking flapjacks over an open fire. 
The second story, told to Hightower, supposedly by the same woman or possibly two women, was that right around the same spot, bootleg whiskey was buried. Hightower went to the location in question, hoping to uncover the liquor and sell it on the open market. We should note that this was during the era of prohibition, when selling alcohol was illegal in the United States between 1920 and 1933. So criminals got to work doing fun things like making bootleg liquor and building organized crime. That's why Hightower was interested. If you could find a stash of bootleg liquor, steal it, and sell it, you could make money, provided the mob didn't catch you and kill you. But Hightower never found that liquor. Instead, with a little digging, he discovered a black prayer scarf, which he suspected belonged to the missing priest. He marked that spot with the scarf and dug no further. He set off to report what he knew and hopefully collect a reward. He was, he explained, a businessman down on his luck. Accompanied by a very suspicious San Francisco police chief, Daniel O'Brien, and a number of equally suspicious detectives and several reporters, Hightower brought his companions to the area in question. Over here, boys, Hightower was noted to have called enthusiastically to his gathering. Hightower began digging with gusto. As the out-of-work baker had claimed that he had no knowledge of how the victim was buried in the sand, or if in fact it was absolutely the priest, the police advised him to dig carefully because he might strike the buried man's face with a shovel. Hightower told them not to worry as he was digging near the priest's feet. Hightower was arrested, and the body of Father Heslin was recovered. The Colma priest had been shot twice, once through the heart and once in the skull. Hightower was then subject to a polygraph examination, and it indicated he was guilty. The San Francisco Call and Post newspaper then printed the story together with an image of the readout with arrows marking the presumed lies. Subsequently, lie detectors became very popular and went on to have a huge cultural influence. Police used them to try to catch criminals. Governments used them to try to catch spies. Lawyers used them to try to catch false witnesses. UFO researchers used them to try to evaluate people who reported encounters. And there were even television shows that used them to try to sort out controversies. For example, I remember watching F. Lee Bailey's TV show, Lie Detector, back in 1983. I remember that, too. Have there been new types of lie detection proposed since the invention of the polygraph in 1921? Yes, there have been refinements to the original polygraph device, which is now typically computerized, but the basic mechanism it works by hasn't changed. However, many new physiological cues have been proposed. Some involve voice stress analysis, the amount of stress in your voice, which is a verbal cue like the shibboleth test from the 11th century BC, only it's measuring something different. Others involve measuring facial expressions and tracking what you do with your eyes. And some involve taking measurements of brain waves with an EEG or with more modern brain imaging technology like an fMRI. A lot of that is still experimental, though, and the traditional polygraph is still the most commonly used test. How does a polygraph examination work? Basically, they ask you a series of questions and measure your physiological responses as you give the answers. There have been different approaches, though, and they've changed over time. One older style approach involves asking a series of relevant and irrelevant questions. If you're, let's say, a suspect in a murder investigation, a relevant question would be something like, did you kill your spouse? 
And an irrelevant question would be something like, is today Tuesday? If the test was being given on a Tuesday, then they could use your response to that question to get an indication of what your readings are like when you're telling the truth. You also might be instructed to lie about uh, one of the irrelevant questions, like saying it, it is Tuesday when really it's Wednesday. That would then theoretically give them a baseline of what your readings would be like when you're lying. You said this was an older technique. Was there a reason newer ones were invented? Yeah, because there's a huge, enormous problem with the relevant, irrelevant question strategy, which is that people will not have the same physiological re reactions to questions they know are irrelevant. People are not going to be as emotionally invested in questions like, is today Tuesday, as they will be in questions like, did you kill your spouse? Whether they're lying or telling the truth about whether it's Tuesday, people just will not be as emotionally worked up about this question as they will be about whether they murdered their spouses, and so the responses will be different. To try to fix this problem, a new technique known as the control question technique has been developed, and it's the most commonly used strategy today. In the control question technique, you get asked three types of questions. Two are the familiar relevant and irrelevant ones, but there's a third kind, which are known as the control questions. Control questions are supposed to be more emotionally charged, but still not questions about the case at hand. So they're more charged than the irrelevant questions, but they're not themselves directly relevant to the case. For example, a control question might be, have you ever lied to someone in the past? Or, have you ever betrayed the trust someone put in you? That way, by asking these questions, they can get a true-false reading on a more emotionally charged topic than, is it Tuesday? What's it like to take a polygraph test? If you want to hold certain sensitive government jobs, you're required to take a polygraph. And in 2010, the National Security Agency, or NSA, produced a video called The Truth About the Polygraph to orient people who were going to be taking them. Its main job was to assure candidates that they don't have anything to worry about. Here's how the polygraph examiners in the video describe the process. What I do at the beginning is I tell the person exactly what's going to happen. Okay, well, I'm Heather. I'm going to be your polygraph examiner today. They will know ahead of time everything that's going to happen before it happens. There will be no surprises. Once they get into the polygraph room, we're going to take some time to go over the consent form, make sure they understand what they're signing, because that's very important that they're not signing a document they don't fully understand. Basically, what this states is that you voluntarily consent to take the exam, that your rights are protected by the Fifth Amendment and by the Privacy Act. Which basically means we do not disseminate any of that information outside of official channels. It doesn't go to family, friends, or anyone else. We video monitor and we audio record interviews uh, for both of our protection. This is the microphone. I want to make sure that I am capturing everything correctly that you said. It also allows you the comfort of knowing that I'm going to be a professional. We start by talking about what the scope of the test will be, the different types of questions. And the questions that I go over and define for you in the pre-test, they're not going to change. That's what I'm going to ask you for every test. So I want you to be able to say, okay, I know what's coming. So it's time to just go through and get through the test. That question will be, have you engaged in espionage against the United States? And you're going to answer, no. 
any concerns or questions about that? None whatsoever. We go through their forms with them. We go over the instrumentation, how everything works, what the process will be. The blue cuff over there you've seen a dozen times, and that just records heart rate and blood flow. We do a, a practice test to help them to get used to what the actual test will be like, and then we typically go into the test. The actual testing portion of the polygraph is the shortest part of the entire process. Have you provided classified information to an unauthorized person? No. The tests last five to six minutes in duration. You'll just be answering straight yes or no. We run anywhere from three to six charts. We repeat questions just to make sure that I'm not basing everything on one question and one response. Have you had secret contact with a foreign national representative? No. If we see anything that is of concern on the test, then or we identify as a possible problem, we will discuss that with the person and give them an opportunity to resolve that issue. Okay, so did I pass? Well, right now it has to go through quality control. We do not give the final result uh, while the person is there in the office. The reason being that all of the information has to go through a quality control process before the final determination is made. Well, polygraph is designed so that there's not just one person that's making a final call on the information that's gathered during the test. It goes through a quality control process with uh, very seasoned examiners. They haven't met you. They don't know who you are in the room. They haven't uh, sat with you for however long it takes to go through the exam. And they're able to look and see with an unbiased eye whether or not there's anything there that's of concern. And so by offering an answer to you about the results of your test right at the end, it would really be uh, kind of shortchanging you. It's not the end if uh, you don't get through your first exam. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Nine times out of ten, really, if you don't get through your first exam, you're going to come back for another exam. And that's because we understand what it is to go through a polygraph and how nerve-wracking that can be and how hard it is to kind of really absorb everything. And so we want to give you every opportunity to be able to come in and successfully complete it. So they bring you into the examination room. They try to be very reassuring. They go over and have you sign the consent form. They tell you they won't disseminate the results outside official channels. They show you the machine and tell you how it works. They go over the questions they'll cover in the examination. They do a practice test with you, so you have practice answering the questions. And then they do the real test. Afterwards, they don't give you the results immediately because they need to go through quality control with an independent evaluator. But they do give you a chance to clarify any potentially problematic answers. And if you don't make it through your first test, you get a chance to come back and take another. And that's what the NSA wants you to know about the lie detector in their video, The Truth About the Polygraph. It's also comforting. We want to give you every opportunity to be able to come in and successfully complete it. question is, how much is the NSA lying and distorting the truth in what they're telling you? <laughs> All right. So uh, after this next segment, we're going to talk about our theories and reason and faith perspectives. But first, 
I'm not lying when I say I want to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Donald A., Father Burke, Daniel E., Seth, and Philip G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's the truth. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. So, Jimmy, let's talk about our theories, or more appropriate, I think this time, is the questions we need to consider about lie detectors. What are they? First, what is the NSA lying about or not telling you in its video? Also, how accurate are polygraphs? What will happen with them in the future? Was the very first guy to be polygraphed in a criminal case, William Hightower, was he really guilty of murder? And what are the faith implications of using polygraphs? Let's start with the reason perspective. What can we say about lie detectors from the reason perspective? What about that very first criminal case in 1921? Was William Hightower guilty of killing Father Heslin? Could he have been an early victim of a false polygraph reading? It's a question worth asking, but the evidence concerning him being guilty is actually pretty good. You'll recall that he told two different stories about what led him to the burial site. One was a story about hearing a rumor about a body being buried there. And the other one was about him hearing a rumor about a bootleg cache of liquor being buried there. So which was it? One of these would seem to be a lie or at least it would suggest that he was lying about something. Also, even though he supposedly hadn't excavated the site on the beach, he told police that he was digging near Father Heslin's feet rather than his face, which he shouldn't have known. Also, the Mercury News reports that after the polygraph test, police work uncovered the forty-five caliber pistol used to kill Father Heslin. They also found the typewriter used to type the ransom notes in Hightower's room at the Larn Hotel in San Francisco, along with a piece of bloody burlap and sand consistent with that of the burial site. Hightower was convicted after a short trial, and despite public outcry for his execution, the baker was sent to San Quentin for life, where he became a master chef specializing in pastries. In all his years there, he never spoke of the priest, and no motive was ever ascertained. He was paroled in 1965 at the age of 86. So they found the typewriter used to compose the ransom notes in Hightower's room, along with a piece of bloody burlap. Both of those are notable indicators of guilt, even without modern DNA testing. So this is an ironic question, but what is the NSA lying about or not telling us in their video? The advocacy website antipolygraph.org issued a response to the NSA video in which they made several counterpoints. First, while it's true that the NSA won't distribute your test results outside official channels, this is misleading. 
They won't give them to your family or friends, but they will retain them forever, and that could harm you in the future. For example, they will share them with other government agencies, and it could stop you from getting a job with one of them. They will even share them with agencies that don't use polygraph tests. They'll still tell the other agency, this guy failed one of our tests, and so you get shut out of that job, even though you normally wouldn't have to take a polygraph to get it. Also, they may share information with law enforcement if you admit to a crime and you can get prosecuted. Law enforcement is considered official channels. Second, the video doesn't disclose the real purpose of the practice test that you do, which is not to get you comfortable with the procedure. As part of the practice test, they do what's called a stimulation or stim test, whose job is to convince you that the polygraph is accurate and will be able to catch you in a lie. For example, they may ask you to pick a number and then deny that you picked that number when the examiner reads you a list of numbers. The examiner will then tell you that you reacted strongly when the number you selected was named, implying that the examiner will see a similarly strong reaction when you do the actual test and tell a lie. But it doesn't matter whether the machine actually picked up on your lie when the examiner got to the number you chose. The examiner will flat out lie to you and tell you that the machine detected the lie whether it did or not. The purpose of the STEM test is thus not to calibrate the machine, but simply to convince you that it will catch you in a lie whether it does or not. Third, when the NSA said that you'll be given an opportunity to address areas of concern and resolve potential problems, that's a euphemism for interrogating you. They make it sound friendly in the video, but they will outright accuse you of lying and it will become a harsh interrogation to try to get you to make admissions of wrongdoing or confess to crimes. Fourth, while they won't tell you the results immediately, with many agencies, it will be clear if you didn't pass because if they suspect you of lying, they will proceed to the interrogation phase. So if you get interrogated by one of these agencies, you'll know you didn't pass. On the other hand, with some agencies, they routinely accuse virtually everyone of lying on their first test so they can bring them back for further testing. If you're applying to one of these agencies that routinely accuses everybody, and the CIA is reportedly one of these, then you can't know from your first test whether you passed or not. And fifth, the antipolygraph.org video, which we'll have a link to, points out that if lie detectors actually worked, they wouldn't need to routinely call people back for further examinations they'd be able to tell from the first test with only, you know, an occasional botched or ambiguous test. The fact they often call people back for one or more new tests shows that they don't have confidence in the results of the procedure. What kind of errors are polygraph tests subject to? There are two principal types, false negatives and false positives. A false negative is when a person is lying, but the test says that he's being truthful. And a false positive is when a person is being honest, but the test says he's lying. Let's talk about the false negatives then. What are some examples of these? 
There are a bunch of famous examples of people who beat lie detector tests and then were later found guilty. For example, Kim Philby, a British spy for the Soviet Union back in the 1950s. He was one of the members of the Cambridge Five Circle of Spies, and he passed polygraphs, uh, reportedly taking the tranquilizer Valium as a countermeasure beforehand. In the 1990s, the American CIA officer Aldrich Ames was caught spying for the Russians, and he had previously passed two polygraphs. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, had passed a polygraph, and so did serial killer Ted Bundy, and there are many more. How do guilty people manage to beat polygraphs? There are multiple reasons for this. Some may be psychologically abnormal so that they don't show the responses that polygraphers are looking for. Others, like Kim Philby, may medicate themselves so that they don't show these responses. But other people beat them through simple training in knowing what the polygraphers are looking for and adjusting their reactions. How do they train themselves to beat the test? Well, remember that in the control question technique, there are those three types of questions, relevant, irrelevant, and control. The relevant questions are the ones they really want to know the answers to, like, did you kill your spouse or have you ever spied on the United States? The irrelevant ones are innocuous things they expect you to tell the truth on, like, is today Tuesday or are you sitting down? They will tell you that the purpose of these irrelevant questions is to get a baseline reading on you, you know, what it looks like when you're telling the truth. But that's a lie. In fact, they don't even score the irrelevant questions. The only purpose of the irrelevant questions today is to serve as a buffer between the relevant questions and the control questions. So those are the two keys that people who are taking countermeasures will focus on, the relevant and the controls. The control questions are ones they expect you to lie about. Examples include, have you ever lied about someone behind their back? Have you ever cheated on a school assignment? Have you ever cheated playing a game? Have you ever lied to a friend? Have you ever gossiped about a coworker? Have you ever lied to a former boss? They expect people to say no to these questions, and they assume that you're lying when you say no. What they then do is compare your no's on the control questions to your no's on the relevant questions. If your responses to the control questions are stronger than your responses to the relevant questions, they assume you're telling the truth. You know, if you were more freaked out lying, have you ever cheated on a school assignment? And you say no. If you're more freaked out about that than you are when you're saying, no, I've never spied on the U.S., they assume you haven't spied on the U.S. But if your responses on the relevant questions are stronger than your responses on the control questions, then they assume you're lying. People who are educated about countermeasures will therefore do things to enhance their responses on the control questions, but they'll act normally during the relevant or irrelevant questions. The polygrapher will then look at the responses and say, hmm, this person reacted less strongly to did you kill your spouse than he did to have you ever lied to your boss, and they'll conclude you're not lying. 
In fact, the person may have killed their spouse and is simply doing something to exaggerate his response when it came to the lying to the boss question. What kind of things do people do to exaggerate their response? There are a bunch of options, and I I won't go through them all. My purpose here is not to teach you how to beat a lie detector test, though there are books and websites that will teach you exactly that. My purpose here is to illustrate problems with the test, so we'll cover a few examples. One thing that people would do is keep thumbtacks in their shoes and then press down on them with their toes during a control question to generate a pain response. That's harder to get away with these days since now they often put motion sensors under your feet and on the seat of your chair to detect if you're changing posture to do things like that. But there are still lots of other techniques. For example, some people will simply bite the side of their tongue when the control question is being asked to generate the same kind of pain response. They also have done mental things during the control questions. For example, they might think about exciting or scary things to jump up their physiological responses. They might do math problems in their head or count backwards from 100 by sevens, you know, so 193, 86, 79, 72, and so forth. And people have adjusted their breathing rates because there are certain changes in breathing rhythm that polygraphers are taught to regard as evidence of deception. This can be as simple as holding your breath for three to five seconds after you exhale while a control question is being asked, or slowing your breathing rate during these questions, or breathing more shallowly, or taking longer to exhale than you do to inhale. Knowledge of these countermeasures is so common that it's now standard in polygraph tests for the examiner to tell you things like, it's understandable that people would read up on polygraph tests and some resources claim to offer ways to beat them. But these are often wrong, so can I count on you not to do anything like that? The very fact that they need to bring up countermeasures is a sign that they do work or they wouldn't bother asking you not to use them. So there are very definite ways to generate false negatives with polygraph tests. What about false positives? Are there examples of those? There are, but they're often not as famous. It's easier to prove someone guilty after they pass a polygraph test than to prove them innocent after failing one, and so there are fewer proven examples. Still, the risk of false positives was great enough that when American employers started routinely using polygraphs to test prospective or current employees back in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a backlash. As a result, Congress passed the Employee Polygraph Protection Act, and President Ronald Reagan signed it into law in 1988. It prohibits most employers from being able to use polygraphs on their employees, but there are notable exceptions. These include federal, state, and local government agencies, which can and do still use polygraph screenings. And that leads to false positives. One example was FBI agent Mark Malla. In 1995, he failed a routine screening and was accused of spying for the Israeli government. The FBI then launched an intensive investigation of him that eventually resulted in the collection of 12,000 pages of documentation in 
32 volumes. He had to use the Freedom of Information Act to get access to this material, which took years, and much of it was redacted when he got it, so he didn't know what it said. Here's what he has to say about his case. A major investigation followed, major in the sense that it was a top-priority case commanding extensive resources. Believing the FBI would objectively review the facts and have no choice but to exonerate me, I cooperated eagerly. After a full day of polygraphs, interrogations, and a three-hour train ride home, FBI agents appeared at our home that same night and asked for our consent to search it, which my wife and I provided. This unleashed a search team of about seven agents, many in raid jackets. The search lasted about three hours and ended well after midnight. I allowed the FBI to take detailed financial records, appointment books, personal calendars, daily to-do lists, my innermost thoughts expressed in personal diaries, personal correspondences, and numerous other items. Following the search, and for about two months afterward, I was under surveillance 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For at least a week during that time, a small airplane circled above our home every morning, then buzzed above me wherever I went. The FBI interviewed numerous friends, acquaintances, former roommates, colleagues, and my family. The Bureau accused one friend of being an accomplice and gave him a polygraph test, which he passed. They showed up unannounced and surprised my wife at her place of work, asking to interview her right then and there. She agreed to be interviewed later. During her interview, the FBI asked her to take a polygraph, which she declined, since she did not trust the device. The FBI asked both of my brothers to take a polygraph test. One agreed and he passed. An agent told one of my friends that there was significant evidence against me. This same agent told my brother he was certain that I was guilty. The experience was highly disturbing on a personal level for all the obvious reasons. It was invasive. My reputation was under constant assault. My career completely undermined. My integrity placed under suspicion, and I was definitively accused of sins which run completely against my values. This was, to say the least, a stressful and challenging odyssey. Perhaps even more disturbing are the larger implications. Nothing more than unsubstantiated polygraph charts launched a major investigation which squandered a vast amount of resources. I estimate that the FBI spent far in excess of $1 million on the case. And when it was all over, the FBI concluded that they didn't have proof of any wrongdoing on his part. They reinstated him, gave him back his badge and gun and top secret clearance. Yet, the investigation perversely continued, and Mala got so sick of it all that he quit the FBI. What causes false positives on lie detector tests? It can be a variety of things. One of these is the attitude of the examiner. If the examiner suspects you're lying or just wants to push you, he may ask the questions with particular vocal inflections that make you nervous and generate false positive results on the relevant questions. So the test is subject to manipulation by the examiner. He can make you fail. Often, though, it's just bad luck. The fact is, the things that the polygraph measures are not uniquely associated with lying. Your breathing can be altered, you can sweat more, and your heart rate and blood pressure can change based on other things. Although, we should note that modern polygraphs don't actually measure your blood pressure, like William Moulton Marston's original test did. 
to get a blood pressure reading, you have to let the air out of the cuff. And in modern polygraphs, they don't do that. They leave the cuff inflated and the machine then generates a line that goes up and down, but that hasn't been medically studied and doesn't really represent your blood pressure. As a result, they're measuring a track line that has no medical definition and has not been studied as the subject of medical research, much less has it been shown to be indicative of lying. In any event, the responses that the polygraph measures can be generated by things other than deception. They can be generated by anxiety. So if you're nervous when you're asked a relevant question, that can throw off the reading. They can also be generated by anger. So if you're mad that you're being asked a relevant question, that can throw it off. And they can be generated by confusion. So if you're overwhelmed by what's happening to you during a relevant question, that can throw it off. The test simply does not measure responses that are uniquely associated with lying. And if, for whatever reason, you have a stronger response to a relevant question than to a control question, you'll be deemed as lying even though you're telling the truth. How often do false positives occur? All the time. The rate has varied, and it depends in part on how harshly the tests are being scored in a given period. Apparently, some years ago, the FBI's applicant screenings had a failure rate of about 20%, or one in five applicants was deemed to be lying about something that would disqualify him from employment. More recently, with harsher scoring, it's been reported that the failure rate has risen to something like 50%, or one in two applicants is deemed to be lying about something that would prevent their employment. Both of these figures seem very unlikely. It's hard to imagine that this many people who had committed serious enough offenses would be applying to the FBI and trying to fake their way through polygraph tests. I mean, really? A fifth to a half? of all applicants are lying about a serious employment-determining matter, that's quite unbelievable and points to an abundance of false positives. But because the results of the polygraph get saved and shared with other government agencies, it constitutes a permanent black mark against a candidate ever getting a job. And if a candidate blows a routine screening after employment, it can destroy his career and irreparably harm him, his reputation, and his family. Surely the problems with polygraph accuracy must be obvious to the government. So why do they keep using them? Probably for several reasons. One is the policymakers who order the use of the tests probably aren't that familiar with the science or the statistics involved. Also, you know, the polygraphers aren't likely to blow the whistle on themselves. They'd be out of jobs if they convinced their bosses to stop the tests. In fact, the polygraphers themselves probably aren't that read up on the science either, or they've only read slanted cherry-picked accounts. Like some reports which will say that this test is 70% accurate. Even if that's True, it still means it's wrong 30% of the time, and 3 in 10 innocent people can be hurt by it. But that's easy to ignore if you only focus on the positive claim. A second reason that the government keeps using these is that it is kind of a form of security theater. That is, it gives the impression we're doing something, even if it's ineffective and potentially harmful. Thirdly, and most importantly, 
there's a hidden agenda behind the use of polygraphs, which is to get into interrogation situations. For example, defense lawyers are not allowed to be present with their clients during a polygraph exam. And so police will use polygraph examinations as an excuse to conduct interrogations without the presence of a lawyer. Because polygraph results are so unreliable, they're only rarely admitted as evidence in court. But police have found a way around that by videotaping the polygraph session. In that case, even though the test results aren't admissible, the videotape is. So they can try to get you to admit to things on videotape without a lawyer and then use that videotape in court, even though they can't use the polygraph results. And they're not bound to tell you the truth about your polygraph. They can tell you that you lied on a question and then press you for a confession or admission of wrongdoing. They also can lie about what the consequences will be. For example, some government polygraphers have been known to tell people that they can admit to anything other than murder and it will never leave this room. In fact, if the polygrapher gets an admission out of you, he can refer it to law enforcement and you can be prosecuted despite what he told you to get the admission. Even if you're innocent, the police may press you to make a confession during a polygraph by telling you, oh man, you're blowing this test so badly, even if you're not, you're just blowing it so badly, you better confess and cut a plea deal now or you'll have the book thrown at you. This is going to look horrible for you if you don't confess now. And this is a common means by which false confessions are extracted, whether or not in conjunction with a polygraph. And it's getting these admissions and confessions that are the main goal behind polygraph examinations. The tests themselves are unreliable pseudoscience, but they're a pretext for getting you into an interrogation situation. And in the case of government polygraph screenings, the examiners are actually rated and rewarded on the number of admissions they get. So think about that. The examiner looks better with his bosses the more admissions he gets, and his career is enhanced by extracting them. So the polygraphers are incentivized to accuse you of lying, and the test is fundamentally biased against the person taking it, even if he's innocent. What have experts said about the reliability of the polygraph? You'll recall that the polygraph was invented by John Augustus Larson back in 1921. He very quickly realized there were problems with it. And before he died in 1965, he wrote, Beyond my expectation, through uncontrollable factors, this scientific investigation became, for practical purposes, a Frankenstein's monster, which I have spent over 40 years in combating. So the man who invented the thing realized it had become a nightmare and by his own admission spent 40 years combating the abuse of the polygraph, which he, I mean, he says it became a Frankenstein's monster. Now, Larson was referring to the use of polygraph tests in criminal matters by the police. 
That's different than its use in employee screenings, whether by government agencies or private employers. And here, there's a dispute. Some experts think that it's okay to use polygraphs in criminal investigations, you know, likely because of the ability to use it to extract admissions and confessions by faking out the person being examined when their lawyer isn't present. But that's a different matter than using it to routinely screen job applicants or current employees. Concerning screening such people, here's what FBI Supervisory Special Agent Dr. Drew Richardson of the FBI Crime Lab told the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1997. With regard to polygraph screening, I submit the following to you. It is completely without any theoretical foundation and has absolutely no validity. As one of my colleagues frequently says, the diagnostic value of this type of testing is no more than that of astrology or tea leaf reading. If this test had any, had any validity, which it does not, both my own experience and published scientific research has proven that anyone can be taught to beat this type of polygraph exam in a few minutes. Because of the nature of, of this type of examination, it would normally be expected to produce large numbers of false positive results. That is, falsely accusing an, an examinee of lying about some issue as a result of the great consequences of doing this with large numbers of law enforcement and intelligent community officers, the test has now been manipulated to reduce false positive results, but consequently has no power to detect deception in espionage and other national security matters. Thus, I believe that there is virtually no probability of catching a spy with the use of polygraph screening techniques. I believe that the Bureau is routinely falsely accusing job applicants of drug usage or drug dealing. Not only is this irreparably harming these individuals, but it is likely denying the Bureau access to qualified and capable employees. Although these individuals do not have an inalienable right to federal government employment, they do have an inalienable right to just treatment by their government. Within the Bureau, polygraph examiners who have little or no understanding of the scientific principles underlying their practice report to mid-level managers who are largely ignorant of polygraph matters. Polygraph research, direction and funding, training and operational review is controlled by those who practice polygraphy and depend upon it for a living. This is tantamount to having the government's cancer research controlled by the tobacco industry. So polygraph screening has no basis and is no more reliable than astrology or reading tea leaves. Anybody can be taught to beat it in a few minutes. Also, you either have to score the tests tightly so that they produce tons of false positives, or you score them so loosely that they won't catch anybody. Countless individuals are being falsely accused by their government of crimes and irreparably harmed by these accusations. Low-level polygraphers who don't know the science report to middle management who know even less about it. And overall research and policy is set by those who depend on the polygraph for a living, comparable to letting the tobacco industry run cancer research. I could continue to pile up examples from other experts who have taken objective looks at the science related to polygraphy, but we'll leave it there. The technique is highly unreliable. If lie detectives are that unreliable now, what about the future? Should we expect them to improve? I think so. Uh, it strikes me as probable that when you lie, that's reflected in the activation of certain brain structures and that this will eventually be detectable by brain imaging technology. 
However, we don't currently have a proven, reliable way of doing that. And that's what you need before you could rely on such techniques. Figuring out how the brain works is extremely tricky, and there's a lot that would have to be untangled to get a reliable reading that indicates deception. We'd need to do extensive testing and ask all kinds of hard questions about what the results of brain imaging are really showing us. We've already seen what happens when the hard questions weren't asked about polygraphs. The readings they produce can be caused by things other than deception, and so we need to rigorously vet brain imaging techniques to show that they aren't also being caused by other things. So while I think it's quite possible that we'll have reliable brain-based lie detectors in the future, we don't have them now, and a lot of work would need to be done to discover the right techniques and then prove them out. For the moment, none of the lie detecting techniques we have are reliable. That includes polygraphs, voice stress analysis, body language measurements, and everything else. What can we say about lie detectors from the faith perspective? What about the fact that current tests depend so heavily on deceiving the subjects about how the test works? Your answer on this will depend on your theory of lying and whether it's ever permissible to deceive a person. If you think lying is never permitted, then current lie detector practices are dead right out of the gate because they lie to you about how the test works and what your results are and things like that. However, Many people think that there are situations where it's permissible for government officials to tell tactical lies in order to catch criminals or spies. If the latter is the case, then the situation's more complex. But that doesn't mean the practice is justified. I mean, consider the reported donkey tail test from ancient India that we mentioned at the top of the show. That depended entirely on whether the criminal was successfully deceived into believing that the donkey could detect whether he was lying. I'm guessing that a lot of criminals wouldn't believe this and would go ahead and grab the donkey's tail even though they knew they were guilty, and that would generate false negatives. On the other hand, I can also imagine a bunch of innocent people being afraid that the donkey would bray just because it doesn't like having its tail grabbed, and they would keep their hands to themselves, and that would generate false positives. So overall, the test would be so unreliable that, in my judgment, it wouldn't justify telling the lie to the people. It, it wouldn't be a case of justified deception. In the same way, modern lie detection methods are so unreliable that I consider their use highly problematic, at least in the large majority of circumstances. As Dr. Richardson said, you either calibrate the test so strictly that it generates lots of false positives or so loosely that it generates lots of false negatives. The test is so unreliable that you normally wouldn't be able to justify lying to people as part of it. And then there's the fact that people can easily learn to beat the test which means that guilty people will walk free and the test will be inherently biased against the innocent. And there's the fact that the examiners are biased against the innocent because they get ranked and rewarded on how many admissions they get. And there's the fact that even if you're innocent, they can lie to you and extract a false confession on the grounds that it will go easier on you if you confess now rather than forcing them to use the polygraph evidence against you in the future. What should a person do if asked to take a polygraph? 
if you're applying for certain jobs or currently have certain jobs, especially with government, law enforcement, or security, you may have no choice. In that case, my best advice is to learn as much about the test as you can, including the specific testing method that will be applied to you, because there are variations in the specific testing methods. That way, you're less likely to accidentally fail because of a lack of knowledge of how the test works and how it can be used against you. If you're not required to take a test, you know, like if the police invite you to take one, refuse. Do it politely, but refuse the test and request a lawyer. In fact, do not voluntarily talk to the police as part of criminal investigations at all. We'll have some resources to explain why in a few moments. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on lie detectors? Polygraphs and other lie detection methods are fundamentally unreliable. Current methods demean and dehumanize those who, re who are required to take them. They are easy to beat. They are biased against the innocent. Many people are irreparably harmed by them. They depend heavily on unjustifiable deception. And the systematic use of such deception and intimidation tactics will spread justified distrust of government and law enforcement. And what further resources can we offer to the listener on the subject? We'll have a link to the antipolygraph.org book, The Lie Behind the Lie Detector, so you can get that and read it. Also, we'll have a link to James Duane's book, You Have the Right to Remain Innocent. James Duane is an attorney who has a fascinating and really eye-opening discussion of what can happen if you consent to be interviewed by the police without a lawyer. And he, in fact, did a debate on YouTube with a police officer called, like, Don't Talk to the Police. And he presents his case from a lawyer's perspective about why you shouldn't talk to the police. And then the police officer gets up and agrees with him. <laughs> so we'll definitely have a link to that video. It's a fascinating watch. And then you can get his book on how to assert your right to not speak without an attorney present because there are apparently some subtleties that are involved in that. We'll have a link to an article on deception in animals. Also, articles on lie detection, polygraphs, William Moulton Marston, Wonder Woman's Golden Lasso, the San Jose Mercury News story about William Hightower and the very first criminal polygraph. Also, we'll have anti-polygraphs response to the NSA video and Antipolygraph's YouTube channel, where they have a number of videos you can watch about problems with polygraphy. Also, Mark Malla's statement about his treatment by the FBI and his Senate testimony. Also, Dr. Drew Richardson's Senate testimony to round things out. All right. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback. As I said, we'll be discussing feedback from the listeners on our episode on the deaths at the National Hotel. Paul writes by email, the National Hotel could have been a parasite. Yes, this was something that suggested itself to me when I started reading about the case, because parasites can hang around and have new breeding cycles and could cause ongoing problems. So parasite was definitely something on my mind. Paul, by email, sent us a link to a Mayo Clinic webpage on a parasite called Giardia which can produce symptoms like that of the National Hotel disease, and it can cause long-term problems. Here's what the Mayo Clinic has to say about it. 
Giardia infection is an intestinal infection marked by stomach cramps, bloating, nausea, and bouts of watery diarrhea. Giardia infection is caused by a microscopic parasite that is found worldwide, especially in areas with poor sanitation and unsafe water. Giardia infection, giardiasis, is one of the most common causes of waterborne disease in the United States. The parasites are found in backcountry streams and lakes, but also in public water supplies, swimming pools, whirlpool spas, and wells. Giardia infection can be spread through food and person-to-person contact. Giardia infections usually clear up within a few weeks, but you may have intestinal problems long after the parasites are gone. Several drugs are generally effective against Giardia parasites, but not everyone responds to them. Prevention is your best defense. So Giardia is a possibility for what occurred here. It's obviously not certain. It could have been some other parasite or some other pathogen. Kathy writes on Facebook, great episode, but kind of harsh on President Lincoln, saying he made a lot of racist statements, especially while giving Jefferson a light tap on the wrist for owning slaves. Lincoln said and wrote many, many things and had often to make difficult diplomatic choices. Tough break for him, considering his statue is probably being pulled down somewhere as we speak. Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate the kind words about the episode. With regard to Lincoln and Jefferson, I don't think that we gave Jefferson a light tap. We noted he owned slaves, although he did recognize there was a problem with the institution. And so I wanted to give him credit for that. I always try to be balanced in the way we approach historical figures. And that includes Lincoln. Lincoln has been idolized here in America. He's really been put on a pedestal that is not deserved. He, like anybody, had good points and bad points. Among Lincoln's good points were the fact that he opposed slavery. Among his bad points is the fact he made racist statements. And so my intention is to take an honest look at history and not either idolize or demean people, but to note both their good and their bad points. Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, could it have been sabotage from a rival hotel? Very interesting hypothesis. Today, that would be something that you'd want to investigate. And for that matter, you'd want to consider it even back then. The difficulty for the hypothesis that I see is that this is something that couldn't be figured out by the professionals of the day. You know, the the, the medical doctors had a, eventually came to the conclusion this is some kind of biological thing. But even then, they were misattributing it to miasma based on the miasma theory in medicine at the time. And so if it was a rival hotel, they would have had to have knowledge of a pathogen that the medical science of the time wouldn't be able to identify. And unless the rival hotel had was being run by really top drawer medical professionals or had them on retainer, they probably wouldn't have that knowledge. Victor Olson uh, on YouTube writes, and he wasn't alone in uh, offering this. He uh, asked, I think they were poisoned by aliens. Because it's, it's always, always aliens. aliens. That's right. Yeah. Ma Al Siklan on Facebook writes, I enjoy these podcasts not only for the mysteries, but for the window onto another time and place. All the incidental details like contemporary American politics here. Another solid episode. I like that you don't stick to the famous mysteries, but also look at the less famous and less dramatic. Thank you. There's just so much fascinating stuff out there in the world, including in history, that when you look into some of these that 
aren't famous, some of these mysteries that aren't famous, you get the joy of discovery. You know, I mean, it's okay. Yeah, here's another episode on Roswell or whatever. But here's something I've never heard of. You know, you get you get something really new and that can be really interesting. Yes. And we get some of the biggest responses from those episodes where people are just discovering something new. So that's that's I agree. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, uh, we have a sleep theme. One article we'll have a link to is will it ever be possible to share dreams? So we were talking about using brain imaging to detect lies. Maybe we can use brain imaging to record dreams and put them up on a screen or share them between people. And so we have an article that covers several different experts' thoughts about how that might or might not be possible or what the challenges would be for that. Also, uh, we have a follow-up on episode 98, which was on sleep and how to get better sleep. Well, you could use some of the techniques from episode 98 to get better sleep, because, and you might want to, because deep sleep may help prevent Alzheimer's. As part of the brain's cleaning process at night, if you can get enough deep sleep, it, it, there's a new study that shows it may have an effect on preventing Alzheimer's. So we'll have a link to that as well. Excellent. So uh, that's about wraps it up for us. We do want to ask you for your theories about lie detectors and polygraphs. And if you've had experiences with lie detectors and polygraphs, we'd especially love to hear from you. So let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, you won't have to wait a week for a new episode. This Monday, we'll be releasing a special episode we did a while back to answer our patrons' questions on subjects they wanted to know about, like what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, Confederate Civil War gold, and Eastern Orthodox Holy Fire. Then, next Friday, we'll be looking into the secrets of Carlos Castaneda, a man who has been called the godfather of the New Age movement and... The Possible Death Cult He Founded. Ooh, that's a good one. All right, so folks, we do want to ask you, if you can, we need your help. Please share the podcast with your friends. And if you can, write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow our community, reach more listeners, and that benefits all of us as the show grows. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give, and that'll give you an opportunity to ask a patron question in the future as well. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>